I was actually recently just speaking to one of my friends and he asked me, which Melchama do you think is most alive? You know, Jewish history, we've had so many battles against so many uh, different kingdoms. Which one do you think is most alive? Which holiday do you think is most alive? And I told them without a question, without a question, the Greek battle, our battle against the Yavanim, never ended. It's not that it's most alive, it never ended. And we are on the front lines. And by delving into the deep topics that I want to delve into today, I want to open up. I want to open up the relevance, not only the, the relevance, like the supreme relevance on how these issues, these ideas, the ideological battle that I think we're all somewhat familiar with and everyone on their own level, but I want to delve to the absolute core. I want to delve as deep as we possibly can. And I want to open up some of the issues which are not cursory, not, you know, the, the Greeks represented reason and intellect, and the Jews represent something more, Torah is transcendent. I want to go to, to the absolute core. And to do this, I want to build a framework where I think the best way we can start is by delving into the Gezeras themselves. Because there's a lot of ideas we talk about, but how often do we delve into the specific Gezeras, the specific decrees that the Greeks set up against the Jews? And most of these are, you can find them in the Rambam, the Hilchas Megillah, the Hanukkah, and the Third Parak. You can also find them in Midrashim. But the Gezeras, some of them seem to make sense. Some of them are, are very rational. They, they kind of get at the core of what it means to be a Jew. But even that, we need to think about, well, what does that mean? What, what does it mean to be a Jew? What exactly do we believe? And how do the Greeks contradict those beliefs? But some of them don't seem to make sense. And whenever you have a list, and they're not homogeneous, they don't all seem to make, you know, to align within this, this, this central theme and idea, the outliers, the ones that contradict those, those central themes, you have to question, why are they on this list? So some of them seem to make sense. We know that the Greeks were in the time of the Beis HaMikdash. So we need to ask, what is the Beis HaMikdash? What does it mean to try to battle against the Beis HaMikdash? Uh, you know, the Greeks put idols in the Heichal and that they, uh, you know, were in time of most of the oil. We have Baruch Hashem, we found some oil. But what is the, what is going on here with the Beis HaMikdash? We know the Ramah brings down that they said, that we weren't able to involve ourselves to, to really immerse ourselves in Torah mitzvahs. So once again, obvious, but what does it mean to, to be to be osik by Torah mitzvahs? What is going on here? They, they prohibited bris milah, circumcision. So what is the purpose of circumcision? What does it represent? Why were the Greeks so... Why were they so scared of us engaging in that mitzvah? What is unique about that mitzvah? And number four, Shabbos. They said that we can't keep Shabbos. So once again, Brismila Shabbos, these things are fundamental to Judaism. We understand its central importance. But once again, you ever ask yourself, why this, why not that? Or what is Shabbos really about? What is Brismila really about? Why do we have a Brismila? Number five is, is really strange. It's actually, the Raman brings it down. It's, it's based on the Gemara Exubus, that the Greeks used to violate Jewish girls who were about to get married. That before they would enter into the, you know, to, to be one with, you know, a husband and wife would come together in a marital union. Before that would happen, the girl would be violated by some important Greek uh, figure. You know, whether it's a general, the, the, some important uh, political figure. And that, that just sounds evil. Like, that doesn't sound like it's a battle against Judaism. That just sounds horrifying. 
What's, what's the deeper theme behind this idea of violating a Jewish girl right before she's about to enter into marriage with her husband? And the Gemara actually talks about all the halachic problems and how to get around that and what they had to do. is really is a horrible, horrible thing. And number six, once again, also doesn't seem to fit our list, is that they, they attacked Rosh Chodesh. That they say you can't keep Rosh Chodesh. Now, the same question really comes up when we talk about the first mitzvah that the Jewish people were given was Rosh Chodesh. Right? That when the Jews were about to leave Israel, Akash Baruch gave them the mitzvah of Rosh Chodesh. Rosh Chodesh Nisan. What, what's going on here when it comes to Rosh Chodesh? Why is that so pivotal? Why is that so important and fundamental to Judaism and in particular to the battle between the Jews and the Greeks? Well, what's going on here? And the last one I want to talk about is also it's brought in the Midrash. It says that the Greeks said that Jews had to kiss lechem al kernashor she'ein lechem chelak belokeisrael. You have to write on the horn of an ox, on the horn of an ox, that you have no share in Hashem, the God of of Christ. So what does that mean? I mean? You can ask a couple questions. Why did they want them to write those specific words with no share in Hashem? Why on why on ox and why on the horn of an ox? What I mean, there's so much in Hanukkah that we don't always talk about. And some is, is, is more, you know, are the things which are, are more um, sub-issues. And some of them we think are sub-issues, but they're actually the central core of what Hanukkah is about. And I want to really delve into this. And because of, of time constraints, we're not going to be able to do it in the way which could be done, because that would take 10 hours or more. Um, each one of these topics really deserves their own cheer. But what I do want to do is I want to do... More of, I want to build more of a framework um, so that we can understand the basic concepts that tie all of these together. And I'll tell you why. It's because when we give one share on one topic, you can go in depth. But the goal of Torah is to interconnect everything together. And because we've talked so much about Shabbos, and we've talked about Bruce Miller before, we've talked about Hanukkah, we've talked about so many of these things, we've talked about the basic English. What I want to do is I want to review some of the basic concepts, then build some of the concepts we haven't talked before about, and then I want to tie them all together. But the best way to really enter into this topic is by taking a step back and, and saying, what, what do Chazal say were the purpose of these Gezeros? Meaning, I can give you a lot of awesome Torah on these topics, but let's go to the core. I mean, what does Chazal say? So Chazal frame it in a very interesting way. They frame it in, in, in with the concepts of darkness. With the concepts of darkness. They say that the Midrash in, in the Gracious Rabbah, in the second, in, in the second um, it's, it's, if you want to look up yourselves, you can look up in, in Parsha Bey Simendalit, the Midrash says as follows. It says that the Greeks, they tried to darken our eyes. So obviously they didn't you know, blindfold us. So what, what is this concept of spiritual darkness? What, what does that mean? What were they trying to stop us from seeing, so to speak, conceptually? And in Alanisim, uh, the, you know, we say in Tila, we say that what did the Greeks try to do? They tried to get us to forget the Torah. Once again, what does this mean to forget Torah? I mean, they, they tried to, to, to brainwash us? Like, how can you make someone forget something? So what's spiritual darkness? What does it mean to forget? Are there, are there different types of forgetting? Are there different types of remembering? What's this concept of remembering? What's this concept of forgetting? And I want you to look at the words of Choshech and and uh, and Lehashkicham, and tell me if you see any similarities between forgetting and darkness. 
But the last question, I think, perhaps the most striking question, is if you look at the Rambam where he brings in all the Gezeros, he says that the real purpose of the Gezeros was bitludaitam. They tried to, it really means to negate our essence, our religion, which sounds like an existential attack. It sounds like a philosophical, ideological, and existential attack against Klai Yisrael, against who we are. And what's actually really striking is that if you, where's the Ramam uses Lashon? He uses this Lashon also in Hilchas Yisrael Torah when he's talking about Shas Hashmad, right? a, a, a military or a government that tries to attack Klai Yisrael as, as a nation, as a religion. So what is this bitludaitum? And the real question you can ask also is, what's the difference between saying you can't do mitzvahs in Torah and bitludaitum? Isn't the saying you can't do mitzvahs in Torah, isn't that just another version of a way of saying bitludaitum? What does bitludaitum add? What is this concept of attacking who we are? Is there anything beyond negating Torah mitzvahs? So uh, the, this is the framework. Well, we're going to try to understand what Hanukkah is really about. What were the Gezeras really about? What is Bitludaitam? What is Lashrichim Torasecha? What's, what's going on here? What, what does it mean to forget, to remember? What are the deeper themes here? And I want to approach this. The way I want to approach this is as follows. And this is one last question. Last question, and this is perhaps the most obscure of all the Midrashim that I want to mention today is the Medrash compares all the different historical battles that Klai Shul's had with different um, types of people, different types of gerim. And the Medrash, Tanchuma, compares, in specific, compares the Greeks to a ger toshav, a ger toshav, which we're not going to go into all details right now, but it's someone who has accepted the Shevmets of Noach, but is not yet fully a uh, Jew, is not willing to accept all the mitzvahs. The question is, like, a gear Toshim is on his way to becoming a Jew. It sounds like a good person. It sounds like someone who's on the, the right path. Why would we compare the Greeks to a gear Toshim? And we're not going to go into all these details, but there are so many contradicting themes in, in Chazal, if you think about it, where we talk about Noah, who gives yeah, gives Yafes, who's the forefather of the Greeks, this bracha, Yaftel Kim Yafes, Vishkan that for some reason there's this bracha that Noah gives that there should be a relationship between Shem and Yafas, between Shem is the forefather of the Jewish people and, and Yafas. So what's this concept of how we're viewing the Greeks? Because it sounds like almost there should be some sort of ideal relationship, but there there isn't. And that's something also to think about. We're not going to go so much into that right now. We've talked about this in the past before, other shirim on this, but it's a question to keep in the back of your mind. So let's let's start slowly. What's the purpose of the, of the decrees? So as we've built in the past, Hanukkah and Purim represent a historical transition. A transition from the first stage of history to the second stage of history. The first stage of history is full of open miracles. Kaj Baruch openly reveals himself, you have Matan Torah, you have Hara, you know, the miracles of our senior, the, the Makos in Mitzrayim, Kriyas Yamsuf, you know, the... the Followed by this extraordinary event of Har Sinai and Torah, where we experience the transcended realm of Kosh who spoke to us, we received the Torah. And then we have the miracles of the Midbar, and then we have a certain period of, of history where we still have Nivua, but then that ends. And Nivua ends, miracles end, open revelation of truth ends, and we have this, this next stage, the stage of Torah Peh, which is deeply connected to Hanukkah, where we really struggle to understand Torah truth. We earn it. It's, uh, it's as the Zohar says, a small candle can do very little in a lit up room, but if there's no light, 
and the lights go out, a small candle can illuminate that room. So that's a very powerful theme. And that's where the transition has really gone. And that's the time we find ourselves in where spiritual truth is so unclear and, and the world is so untransparently transcendent, as in it's not easily seen that there's a transcendent source to this world. That's the time we live in. But what happened? What happened when we transitioned to this new stage is something very fascinating. You know, the Greeks are, are often associated, we're not going to talk so much about this, I want to just briefly mention this. The Greeks were often associated with atheism. Uh, it's a Greek wisdom, Greek intellect, philosophy. But where there was no atheism before this time period. And if you look at Tanakh, no one says, I don't believe in God. Everyone, they were, they were pagans, there were people who believed in many gods, monotheism, and then there's, you know, this, this spiritual transcendent view of, of Klaishol that the transcendent is connected with the physical. That's a very unique form of monotheism. So these different forms of spirituality, but everyone believes in, in some transcendent source of the world. And only with, with the modern trajectory of history, as history has evolved, was this new idea of atheism, but that only came with this transition. So this transition, once the world went dark, once Akash Baruch Hu didn't openly reveal himself anymore, there was no more Nevo and open miracles, then you start to have atheism. And that's something to keep in mind, by the way, in terms of where atheism comes from. It's at this time period that, that it really began. But the Greeks, while representing atheism, didn't just simply rejected. They, they wanted to do more than not believe in Hashem. Because they definitely had beliefs. They had uh, philosophical beliefs. They were extraordinary philosophers. They were, uh, the Rambam talks all about how powerful their intellectual and philosophical works were. But what were they trying to do? They weren't only trying to believe in what they wanted to believe. They wanted to destroy our belief. Why? Because our belief contradicted their belief. We believe in a transcendent source. We believe in Hashem, who not only is transcendent, but is involved, engaged, and connected to this world, and that has given His transcendent truth to a certain people that transcends just pure philosophy, just pure Greek wisdom. And they said, no, you cannot contradict us because that makes us inferior to you, and we are supreme. So what they did, what the Greeks really represent, is the attempt to disconnect Klai Yisrael from Hashem, to disconnect us from Torah, to disconnect this world from anything transcendent. Because once this world is disconnected from the transcendent, their supreme intellect can be the new transcendent. They are the ultimate example of an ego-driven ideology where humans and human intellect is the absolute. That is the ultimate. That is the source, that is the end, that is the goal, that is all there is. The Ramban says very, very purely and very clearly and very famously that the absolute problem with the Greeks was that anything their intellect could understand or comprehend, they believed anything their intellect could not grasp, they deemed to be invalid and not true. And that is such an egotistical view of truth. Because reason is so important, but to believe that you are the beholder and decider of truth is perhaps the ultimate human fallacy. And that the inability to recognize anything beyond yourself is what blocks out all higher truth. And that really is, if you think about it, that's what spiritual darkness is. It's, we talked about two forms. They want to make us forget and they want to make us spiritually blind, meaning they want to darken and they wanted to to darken our eyes. What are these what do these ideas mean? Well, the first is to darken someone's eyes is to, to block out spiritual sight. 
it's like you look around the world, but there's so much we can talk about this, but I'm just going to give you like some you know, introductory brief concepts. You look around the physical world and that's all you see. You don't see anything transcendent. You don't, you don't see ideas. You don't see ideas floating around. You see things. You don't see people's thoughts, their inner world, their inner uh, emotions, their, their, uh, their, their experiences. You don't see anything beyond the physical outer expression. So if you want to know what's in my head, you have to look at how I act. You have to look at, you have to hear the words I say, and then not only hear the words I say, but try to break them down and understand what I really mean. And that's what life is. It's how are you, what conversation are you having with the world? So the Greeks had a conversation with the surface of the world. And our job is to read the world as an expression of a transcending, Nefshachim talks all about how Karsh names represent how I should manifest into the world. So you Elokim, different names of a Baruch Hu reflect different ways that Hashem reveals himself to the world. Now, what's a name? A name is how someone is expressed. You don't need a name for yourself. You don't call yourself by your name. You use your name so that other people can refer and relate to you. Now, the Ramban says that the Torah is Hashem's name, meaning the Torah is one giant uh, revelation of a Baruch Hu, his will, his wisdom. And... The Midrash says, that Hakash Baruch Hu, Baruch Hu looked into the Torah and used it to create the world. So the world itself is an expression of the Torah. The Torah is an expression of Hakash Baruch Hu, so the world is an expression of Hashem. The Ramchal talks about this in Derech Hashem. The whole physical world is an expression of the spiritual. So what does that mean? It means that by looking at the physical and getting past the surface, you can actually hear what Hakash Baruch Hu is saying. The whole world is a conversation with Hakash Baruch Hu. That Ma'antar wasn't a one-time event. The whole Lech Lecha that Gosh Baruch told Avraham, you just have to listen. You have to peer beneath the surface. Study everything. Learn, think, contemplate. Look beyond the surface. Don't only use the surface. Don't only use the physical world of physics and science and intellect and mathematics and stuff. Those are all important aspects of the truth, but they're not the whole truth because there's something beyond the surface that we need to get to. And that is the powerful core of Hanukkah, that there is a light beyond the surface. There's physical light and spiritual light. What does light do? It reveals. What is the spiritual light? What's the spiritual or? Orisa. Torah comes from the root of or, light. It is spiritual light. It is spiritual wisdom. It's how Kajbahu reveals. Light reveals. You can see this room is lit up. You can see me because the room's lit up. Well, you can see truth because that is what the Torah reveals. It reveals Hakashbahu in the world. And that's what the Greeks fought against. Now let's take this a step further, because the Mayan of Torah, the wellspring of Torah, delving deeper, much deeper, it's like you, there's so much depth in Torah, and it, it, it has infinite facets. But what did the Greeks try to do? They tried to make us forget Torah. Last year comes Torah. What does it mean to forget? It's not that we forgot it like we just didn't do Chazara. We, did, we weren't reviewing Torah enough. They try to disconnect us. To forget refers to a disconnection. Where the, you remember, well, let's talk about remembering and forgetting. There, there's things that you're aware of. Those things are in the forefront of your consciousness. Then there are things that you can remember. You can bring back to the forefront of your consciousness. And then there are things that you forget because they're not in the forefront of your consciousness and you can no longer access them. The Greeks tried to darken our eyes so we can no longer see it. Oh, but what about remembering it? No, now we're going to cut it off. We're going to make sure that you forget it. The spiritual concept, and look at the words, by the way. The words for choshech and, and to forget 
It's the same shachach, is the same root as choshach. It's to forget. Darkness causes you to forget. And let, let's look at this. This is powerful. Right? There are, so in al Hanisim we say, she, uh, uh, we, we talk about lahashchicham teresecha. And if you look at the word hashchicham, this, this is beyond powerful. What does hashchicham stand for? The letters hashchicham, it stands for Shabbos. The Greeks tried to make us forget Shabbos. Mila, they made us forget Mila. Chodesh, Rosh Chodesh, they tried to make us forget Chodesh. What are the last four letters spell? Heichel. Right? They were metame the Heichel. They were metame so much of the oil. They put idols in the, in the Heichel. This, to forget, is the very essence, stands for the entire essence of the battle against the Greeks. And is also the manifestation of what they did. But what does this mean to forget? What, what are we talking about here? This is unbelievably powerful. We talked about our previous year of the Or Haganos. We talked about the transcendent light that represents Adam Harishon's original status. We talked about the fetus in the womb that moons called Torah Kulu, and there's a light above its head. When you were in the womb, and we've talked about this literally tens if not hundreds of times, when you were in the womb, you learned Kola Torah Kula. What does that mean? It means that you saw with spiritual sight. You saw everything. You saw all of reality, all of the spiritual transcendent truth. You saw your purpose. You saw everyone's purpose. You saw the entire trajectory of everything. But when you were born, you forgot it. What does it mean? It means you lost access. All of life is about retaining access to that truth. What do the Greeks try to do? Keep that connection disconnected. Make sure you do not connect to anything higher. Make sure that the physical world is all that you're connected to. That is unbelievably powerful. And we can take this step further because what, what happens here? You lose access when you're born, right? And through that losing access, through that darkness, you, the light above the feast's head is no longer there. You also forgot. Shachach, you forgot it. But what Maharal says that where does the mouth hit you on the mouth? Because the mouth is the point of connection. Why? Because the mouth is is dibur, it's speech, but the mouth itself is a limited expression of that which is transcendent. So for example, when you try to formulate deep ideas, you have trouble, because there are ideas that transcend speech, experiences, transcendent spiritual ideas and truths that you can only contemplate, but you can't formulate in speech. You can try, but the words never reflect their truth. And anyone who tries to communicate, especially in a marriage, if, if you ever like, truly try to communicate, you can only really communicate beyond words. When you get to know someone in such a deep way that you don't need words. Words can help. They can also definitely be a problem because words are so limited. You know, a word is, is a mila, it means to cut. And a dover is a thing. And, and a tave is a box. Because when you really speak, is a limited expression of ideas. So you cut your idea Right? You put it into a box, and it's just that. It's not what you was actually in your head. It's just a limited expression of your original idea. So speech is always a limited expression of truth. And the Maharal says that the reason the mouth hits you on the mouth is that, not that it's not the mouth that makes you... It, it, it's not that you're unable to speak. It's that the very gift of speech, the very ability to speak, is what makes you lose your access to that truth. And that getting back to that transcendent truth is about getting back to that transcendent point beyond speech, beyond words, where it's post-rational, where it's not experiential in the terms of like, you know, having, you know, we talked about experiential truth. Like, how do you know you're alive? How do you know that you are awake right now? How do you know that your life has meaning? How do you know that you're Jewish? Like, how do you know that, how do you know all these, these things that are not logically proven, but things that you know deep, deep at your core, at your essence. So those are not 
logical, rational things, you know, those are things that are beyond reason. And we've also talked about this in the past, this is a powerfully deep idea. But the very gift of speech is the inability to access deep truth, and then you need to then reattach yourself to transcendent truth. That's what learning Torah is all about, getting back to the absolute truth, HaKadosh Baruch will, to the, to the transcendent wisdom that is the foundation of life itself, and then using speech to share that with other people while recognizing the limitations of speech, sharing the limitations of speech, and still using it, because that's what we, that is a tool and mechanism of connection and of sharing truth. And then we just guide other people back to that transcendent truth, and that's what the Maharal explains as Moshe's speech impediment. You know, the Rashbam says Moshe's speech impediment was that he just couldn't speak, he didn't know how to speak Egyptian. Right? And some think that he had a lisp. The Ran says that the reason why Moshe had speech impediment was because the leader of Klai Yisrael, who was going to give Klai Yisrael the Torah, couldn't be an inspirational speaker. And that we had, because then we'd say the only reason Klai Yisrael accepted the Torah is because he was so inspiring. So he had a speech impediment so that people would never say that it was anything other than the fact that it was true. That's the only reason Klai Yisrael accepted it. But the Maharal says something absolutely unbelievable. He says that Moshe had a speech impediment because it was not a speech impediment. It was that Moshe was so connected to transcendent truth that he couldn't speak because speech is limited. So he was lamala min hateva. He was connected to transcendent Torah wisdom, which was beyond words. And once Akash Baruch did the impossible, which is to manifest infinite truth, the Torah, into finite words, then in Sefer Dvarim, when Moshe starts, you know, after Moshe gives the Torah, that's Moshe Sefer, right? Moshe speaks. Meaning what? That true speech should be impossible. And that's the paradox of the Torah, is that it's transcendent truth that is within words. That is not beyond words. It is beyond words. It? it contains the infinite within it, but it, it contains it within it. That's the paradox. That's like, like the burning bush. The fact that a flame cannot consume the bush is the fact that transcendent truth can remain within a physical vessel, that the soul can remain within the body. That's the paradox of the connection between the physical and the spiritual. So what do the Greeks try to do, though? The Greeks try to disconnect the physical to the spiritual. Anything that can't be put into words is not real. It's not true. It doesn't exist. There is nothing transcendent. And that is like, you know, rational versus transcendent wisdom. Only that which can be spoken in words. And this is, by the way, important to realize. When it comes to rational Torah truth, when it comes to learning Lamdas, learning Sugis Be'iyan, learning Gemara, you need to be able to formulate that in words. If you can't formulate in words, you don't know it. But when it comes to transcendent truth, when it comes to post-rational ideas, when it comes to chachma and machshava and the real wisdom of Torah, if you can put those in words, you don't know it. The only purpose of putting them in words is to share them with other people, to guide them in a direction of getting back to the ultimate truth. And that is something which is so important because all of life is about zechira, Right? The Greeks tried to make us forget the Torah. All of life is about remembering Torah, remembering that truth, to get, remember back what you learned from the womb, but also, for example, on, on Rosh Hashanah, we have Zechronos, right? Shofros. We're trying to get back to our root. We're trying to remember who we are. What's remembering? Going back to where it came from, right? When you remember something, you trace it back. All of life is about remembering. Tracing back this physical world to a spiritual source, that's what life is about. And Lashvichim Torasecha, they tried to make us forget that. They tried to make sure we did not trace ourselves back to any transcendent source. That we did not trace ourselves back to Gosh Baruch Hu. And the goal of life is to recreate that clarity. It is to connect to Gosh Baruch Hu. It is to learn Torah. It is to get that clarity, to remember. And the Greeks said, no. 
you're not going to do that. We're going to make sure you don't do that. And what I would basically like to do now is to delve into the gazeros, to delve into the different gazeros. And, and the, the frame for this, what, what were the Yavan? What, what's Yavan? Yavan means quicksand in Hebrew. It comes to the same etymology, same root, which means quicksand. What, what's quicksand? First of all, Yavan itself. You get stuck in quicksand, you get deeper and deeper and deeper and stuck into it. Right? What is, look at the word Yavan. Yud, Vav is a longer Yud, and Nunsuf is a longer Yud. It's just getting stuck into that. What are they trying to get you stuck into? Into Teva. Into the natural, natural wisdom, the natural world. Teva, which means natural, is, is all that there is, according to the Greeks. That's all that there is. And there's a lot of other ideas that we can go into Teva, because Teva also means, it means to sink. Because it's so easy to get sunk into the natural world, just like you get sunk into quicksand. And nature, what is Hanukkah? It's the last miracle, it's the last open miracle that we've ever experienced. So we can talk more about that as a very deep topic. What about the miracles that happened in, in the Gemara? We're not going to go into that right now. But it's the last, you know, Purim is, is the last, I would say, because Purim and Hanukkah are the transition from open miracles to hidden miracles, where we have to find the miraculous within the Teva. But it's fascinating because Hanukkah is the smallest open miracle. It's an open miracle, what, that the, the oil lasted eight days and nights, but it happened in a very particular place at a very particular time where not that many people saw it. It was a small flame, right? It wasn't a... The Makos, Torah. those were like tremendously uh, uh, enormous miracles. Smallest open miracle, right? That's the last open miracle. What about Purim? That is the biggest hidden miracle. The biggest hidden miracle, meaning it's actually quite easy to see the miraculous within the natural there. And that was the transition. The smallest open miracle, the biggest hidden miracle, and now we have to look past the surface and find the miraculous within the hidden. But the Greeks said that's all there is. Remember, the Greeks are living at this time where we've transitioned to the natural. They said there is no miraculous. There's only the natural. And that's Bethlehem's night. That's what they tried to do. They tried to attack our very identity of connected to something transcendent. They said, you are not connected to the transcendent. You are, by definition, limited. They didn't attack just the mitzvahs or just the Torah. They attacked us. They attacked our identity. They attacked who we are. And they tried to change our own sense of identity. And that's what the Gezeros were about. The Gezeros unbelievably powerful. We're going to delve into these. Remember, we're not going to go into all of them in depth because each of them really require at least one share. But the Gezeros were the, the very means through the Greeks tried to disconnect us from Akash Baruch Hu and disconnect us from our transcendent identity. And what did they say? I mean, I want to, I want to frame this. Because the entire Machlokas really delves into a concept we have talked about before, and the Maharal wrote a whole sefer on this, on, on Hanukkah, and this is really the main, the, the Iker idea is Machlokas between seven and eight. And what do I mean by that? Maharal says like this, says the entire physical world is built off sevens. So you have seven days in the week, seven lights in the spectrum of light, seven notes in the musical scale, you have Sheva Minim, Sheva Mitzvot Noach. Why is the physical world built off of sevens? Because the natural is seven. And what does that mean? Why seven specifically? Because the natural world is a three-dimensional world. So you look at our world, you have right, left, forward, backward, up, and down. Three-dimensional really means six sides of a three-dimensional cube. 
we live in a three-dimensional world, but that's cheating because just because you have three signs, they can all be on a, you know, facing down on the, on the floor. What's the intricate, what's that which connects all of reality together? It's that center. That center is called the seventh. A lot of Jewish sources talk about this. Maral brings this down, says that the seventh is the natural. That's what, that's what really is this world. But lemala min hateva, beyond the natural, that's the eighth. That's Torah. Torah is the eighth. Chanukah. Eight days, eight nights. That's what Hanukkah is about. What's also, Shmona is eight in Hebrew. Shemen is oil. Also, you can look at it. Oil was the miracle of Hanukkah. And you can look at it like this. That Sviya means satisfied, but Shemen means fat, that which expands beyond. And it's also very interesting that the Hanukkah has eight candles, but the menorah in the Beis HaMikdash had seven candles. So this this transition to the eighth is a whole topic where we can't go into that right now. It's a, unbelievable topic. But what's the main concept? The main battle is like this. The Greeks embrace the seventh. And they say that not only is there a physical world, but there's tremendous spirituality and transcendence within the physical world. Wisdom, philosophy, science. There's tremendous wisdom in the world. But that's it. Teva wisdom, natural wisdom, physical wisdom, science, philosophy. That's it. But Torah? That which is transcendent, the eighth? No. And that was the absolute battle. And all the gazers that we're about to go into are really at the heart and core of that battle. And remember, Ma'an Torah is, you know, we do seven weeks of counting spheres Omer, and the eighth week is Ma'an Torah. That is the eighth. And all of these gazers really tap into the central theme. Because the first, let's talk about the Ramatama and the base Hamikdash. They, they attack the Heichal. Right? And the Heichal is basically what connects to the Kodesh HaKadoshim, which is that which is Lamala Minatava. There was no dimensions of space or time within the Kodesh HaKadoshim because that's where the Evan Shasiyah was, which is the point of creation. We've talked about this many times that the base HaMikdash is the point of connection between the transcendent and the physical. It's where Kodesh Baruch who connects this world. The base HaMikdash is where we, we have Karbanos. It's where Kodesh Baruch who spoke, he spoke through the Kruvim, HaKadosh Baruch who connected to this world, it's where HaKadosh Baruch who kisses the world. What do all those three have in common? Kissing, speaking, and eating with your mouth. Why? Because Maral explains, actually, you know, it's Chazal talk about this, but the, the, the powerful idea is like this. The mouth is the organ of connection. You eat to connect your soul to your body. You speak to connect one soul, one mind with another mind, right? I'm speaking to you, I'm connecting with you, I'm sharing ideas with you. You speak to connect with other people, and you kiss to physically connect with someone across all cultures and ethnicities. Kissing is the form of love, of connection. And you kiss someone that you love. Why with your mouth? Once again, form of connection. And it's a form of connection, which obviously it's physical kissing, but it represents an existential and spiritual form of connection and love. Bisa Mikdash has all three of those forms of connection. Eating, Nefeshachim talks about how the karbanos are what connects Hashem to this world. If you don't eat, your soul leaves your body. You eat to connect your soul to your body. We bring karbanos to connect HaKadosh Baruch the soul of the world, and the Neshamos, to the physical world. Now that we don't have the karbanos anymore, what do we do? Tefillah. About Salib, we share, we speak, we use Dibor to connect HaKadosh Baruch to the world. Speaking, HaKadosh Baruch spoke through the Kruven to, to Moshe. And that's where Akash Baruch spoke to Moshe Rabbeinu. That's that's for that's one the second form of speech. And then kissing the Gemara talks about how how the Beis Hamikdash and Yerushalayim really as a whole is where Akash Baruch kisses the world, connects to the world. So these three forms of connection. The Beis Hamikdash 
is the Makum Shel Kedush, is where the transcendent connects to the physical, is where our world meets the infinite. That's where all the regular, all clients will come to really embrace that connection three times a year, the Shalash Rudalim. That is what the Greeks try to attack. And the Maral talks about this in their mitzvah. He says that the 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 Iker HaKadusha who base who base Amikdash, right? That the Greeks tried to be Mevatel our connection with Gosh Baruch Hu, and the Iker Kadusha is the base Amikdash. That's really the, the the absolute center point that they tried to attack. Because that's where we connect to Takash Baruch Hu in the most potent way. And if you think about it, what they do, they try to put Greek idols in the Heichal. And, and why they didn't go into the Kosha Kadashim is a whole other discussion the Maral talks about because they couldn't. Kosha Kadashim is the Malam and they had no access to that. The Romans, they actually, Titus went into the Kosha Kadashim, there's a whole other discussion, we're not going to go into that right now. But they had no access to that. They can only go into the Heichal, and they can only try to be Mitan at that. And they put idols there trying to see that there is no connection to anything higher. They tried to cut off that connection. And that was really the spiritual battle. The Greeks wanted to destroy our connection to Gosh Baruch. So that's number one, based on Hikdash. Number two is Torah wisdom. Talmud Torah said you can't learn Torah. This is once again quite obvious. They said you can't, you have no connection to the transcendent. And we've talked about this before. Ideally, that ideally there would have been some sort of marriage between the Greeks and the Jews, that they would have embraced the fact that we are connected to that which is more, to the Torah, and that they are connected to this world, similar to the Yaakov Esav relationship that could have been, where Yitzchak would have given Esav the brachos of this world, Yaakov would have had the brachos of the spiritual, and they would have been a, a team. In a very similar sense, that same relationship could have been between us and the Greeks, but they said, no, it's not that we embrace the, the physical and you embrace the spiritual, it's that we embrace the physical, and that's all there is. There is no transcendent wisdom. And that was the real machlokas. And the Ramban we mentioned says that the, anything that, that their intellects could not grasp, they said, wasn't true. So when we talk about Torah wisdom, we're talking about that which transcends reason, that embraces reason, but is also beyond reason. So... How do you know you're awake? How do you know that you exist? How do you know that you have free will? You know, science, science attacks the fact that we have free will. Everything's determined. What about how do you know your life has meaning and purpose? How do you know that you're unique, that you were created for a unique purpose? How do you even know your parents are your parents? There are things that we know in such a deep way that it transcends reason. And that's the same idea of Torah. You know, the Torah, the fact that Kodesh Baruch Hu is so perfect and transcendent, yet is imminent and connected to our world and cares about us and, and has a relationship with us and revealed himself to us and gave us his Torah, his word, his truth, his wisdom, his will. And that Safta mitzvot are not just about obeying Hashem's will, but the Maharal talks about the fact that mitzvot are connected to the word Safta, which means connection, that we get to connect with the Kodesh Baruch Hu, become partners in perfecting this world with the Kodesh Baruch Hu. That... That is transcendent. Tzadok actually explains, he says that if Aristotle, you know, the, the most famous Greek philosopher, Aristotle, Plato, we're not going to get into all the different forms of Greek philosophy, but Aristotle, if Aristotle would have been at Harsinai and experienced unto himself, Tzadok says that the very next day he would have given a hundred proofs why it's impossible, why it didn't happen. Because experience that transcends reason is null and void to one who rejects anything beyond their reason and the beyond their rational faculties. And that was the real machlokas of Hanukkah, that there is nothing more. In Shabbos, they attacked Shabbos. Why? Because Shabbos is me'in ol haba. What's a Shabbos? Shabbos, we take a break from malacha. Malacha's creative activity comes from the Shorosh of Malach, which is a creative emanation, creative force that comes from the Kodesh Baruch Hu. 
Shabbos, we take a break from Allah, from engaging in the physical world, and it's, it's a taste of Olam Haba. We taste the transcendent. Why? Because Shabbos is the seventh that connects us to the eighth. And the Greeks said, you have no connection to the eighth. There is only seven. And that's it. And that's why they attacked Shabbos. They said, you have no spirituality within the physical world. Shabbos, we have uh, Neshama Yisira. It's not two Neshamas. It's more Neshama. You're more spiritually connected and able to engage in the physical world in a transcendent way. We are transcendent beings living in a physical world. And the Greeks said, no, you're not. You're physical beings living in a physical world that are rational, that are, are capable, but that's it. You're nothing more than a physical being. You have no connection to the transcendent. And now we get to Brismila, which is an unbelievably deep topic, and we can talk about this for, for literally, for, for hours and hours and hours, but just you know some brief ideas on Brismila. Number one, Brismila is on the eighth day. That's why Brismila is, you're able to be about the Shabbos for Brismila, not because it's, it overcomes Shabbos, but it, you know, Shabbos is the Elam Habbos, a taste of Elam Habbos, Brismila is the expression of the transcendent. Why? Because Brismila is, we take the most physical and animalistic organ of the body. And we uplift it and transcend it and devote it to a spiritual purpose. Devote our entire body, our entire physical essence to a spiritual purpose. And that's what Brismila is. And Amaral talks about this. That it's the eighth. It's another example of the eighth. Brismila is where we uplift the spiritual, just like wine. Why? Because we have wine by a Brismila. We have wine by Shabbos. We have wine by Yom Tovim. Wine is, is in, in Islam. You know, in, in, in Islam, wine is prohibited. Because wine gets you to a point where you, it negates the rational faculties. Well, you can talk about this a lot when it comes to pardon. But wine can be misused, of course, but it can also be used to transcend. Because we're not going to get into this right now, but when used correctly, you can use wine to enter into a post-rational, experiential, deep state of true connection, which you can argue is the ultimate purpose of Purim, of, you know... Adulayanda is really getting to that point where everything is in a deeper state of oneness. But wine is the ultimate example of using something which could be misused, using it for a positive spiritual purpose, which is the Maharal says that nothing is good or bad. It has potential and can be used for the good and bad. And the more potential, the more it can be used for the bad, and the more it can be used for the good. And that's what Prismila is about. It's saying that there is Lamala Minatava. There is the transcendent. Just one second to connect. Let's make sure everything's battery doesn't run out while we're <laughs> recording. Um, but what is Lamala Minatava? Let, let's understand this. What is the concept of bris? So, first of all, the, the Ramban says that when we make a bris meal, we're making a bris with the Kosh Baruch Hu. We're making a bris with Hashem. And when we talk about making a bris with Hashem, the Ramban says it comes from Hashem Bria, right? Something which is eternal, an eternal covenant with the Gosh Baruch Hu. So what is the deep nature of this? So another real question, and this is a powerful question, is, is what's going on when we talk about the Lashon of a bris? So the Vilna going to ask this question. He says, we say Kores bris. So we're cutting? What is that? Like we're literally... We're cutting a bris, and with a bris, we're cutting something off. So, so what's going on here? What's the Lashon of Kores? So you'd think it would be the opposite. You'd think that when you make a bris with Hashem, you're connecting with Hashem. But it sounds like we're cutting off something, we're cutting ourselves off when making a bris. So 
it's, it seems like these are two opposite ideas. One is connection and one is cutting off. So which one is it? Are we cutting off or are we connected? So the Vilnagon says very beautifully, he says it's like this. A bris is a connection between two people. But the Iker essence of a bris is giving a piece of yourself to the other. Why? So that when you are somewhere else, you still have a piece of them with you. And when they're somewhere else, they still have a piece of you. And what do we do when we have a bris meal? It's, it's almost, it's unbelievable. It's, you're creating oneness. You're giving a piece of yourself to a Baruch Hu and he's giving a piece of himself to you. What does he give to you and what do you give to him? So we cut off the Orla. We cut off, we, we cut off a piece of our, our organ of reproduction, the continuity, our future. We give a piece of ourselves to a Baruch Hu. And Akash Baruch Hu gives us life itself. Achilak Elukanimal. We get it. Akash Baruch Hu breathes life into us. We are carrying an aspect, a chilak, a spark of Akash Baruch Hu. And we are in ultimate union with Hashem. Which ties into a theme we're going to get to in a moment. But this is the beautiful idea of the eighth. The idea of the eighth is that transcendent spark of Akash Baruch Hu that is within each of us. And that's what the Bris Mila is about. It's about connecting to that transcendent element within us, which allows us to uplift our physical bodies. Even the most animalistic organ in our body can be used in the most spiritual and uplifting way, which connects to the very next gazera. What was that? What, 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 what's the gazera that is so problematic that the Greeks attacked? They, they defiled the, the Jewish woman they're about to go into marriage. Why? It sounds, it sounds purely evil. Unless you have a different view of marriage. Unless you view marriage as a purely animalistic relationship. That's not transcendent. You know, the Ramban talks about how marriage is representative of the relationship between us and HaKadosh Baruch Hu, both individual Jews with HaKadosh Baruch Hu and all of Klai Yisrael with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Shir HaShirim, Shlomo HaMelech, were a whole safer about that connection between Klai Yisrael and HaKadosh Baruch Hu, between each of us and HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It's a marriage relationship of love, connection, union, oneness of devotion, of giving ourselves to a Kodesh Baruch Hu. The Kodesh Baruch Hu has already given himself to us. He's given us his Torah. He's given us life. He's given us purpose. But we have to give ourselves to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And that's what marriage is. And that's what our marriages represent. The idea of creating true oneness, connection, commitment, responsibility, harmony, true beauty. That's what marriage is about. And the Greeks said, no, it's not. Not only are we going to disconnect your marriage from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, by attacking the Torah and Shabbos and the Bishamikdash, we're going to attack the mushal, the example, the, the, the analogy that you have for true connection with the Kodesh Baruch Hu. We're going to attack that too. We're going to attack your marriage. We're going to say your marriage is not spiritually uplifting and is so animalistic that we're going to actually violate the woman right before she enters into the Jewish home to say, you know, we're, just, we're not even doing anything wrong because there is nothing here. You know, it's, it's so... There are two ways to think of it. Number one is they tried to destroy our marriages. Number two is they just tried to destroy the very concept of marriage itself. They didn't try to destroy the connection between one man and his wife and say that, you know, you think you're so close with her, you think you're going to build an amazing relationship, forget it. No, they said there's nothing to build. There's nothing here. We're all physical, animalistic beings. And that is where we have to fight for in our marriages. That's what, you know... In today's day and age, that is one of the hardest things to connect to. Is is creating true oneness in marriage. Is is creating such a powerful makom for true connection, oneness, a Torah-centered relationship, a consciousness-centered relationship, where two people have shared values, identity, mission, not 
one identity, but a form, a, a way of connecting into a higher self, that they remain two individuals and yet also one, and that that's not a contradiction, that you don't lose yourself in marriage, but find yourself and yet find your individual self within a shared collective that strengthens your individuality, individual self. And that form, that same form of connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, where you don't disappear, but you find yourself within giving yourself to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that you find your uniqueness within devoting your entire self and giving up your ego, that you say, you know what? I am nothing and yet I'm everything. And you give up all selfishness and gaiva, and yet you find the most supreme and, and, and ultimate version of yourself when you give up that, your, that type of self. And it's like the, the person who gets kavod is only the one who doesn't want it. But the reason why only one who doesn't want it gets it is because only one who doesn't want kavod and just truly pursues the truth is the type of person who people look at and say, that person is extraordinary. That I want to be like that person. That person inspires me. And when you care about kavod, it, it by definition makes you the type of person that no one looks up to and respects because there's something so off about the very want for external recognition and kavod. The only kavod one should want is kavod HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It's kavod Hashem. Like Pinchas who fought for kavod Hashem. That is true kavod. And that's what we really fight for when it comes to Hanukkah is, is fighting that battle with Muhammad for HaKadosh Baruch Hu, for his Torah. You know, we went out, the, the Hashemite went out and fought for HaKadosh Baruch Hu's Torah. It made no sense. It was irrational. But it doesn't matter because it was necessary. It was true. And that is what Torah is. And, and, and I think the next Gezer is, is the most obscure, the one that really doesn't fit into the others, and the one that actually is the foundation, in some sense, for all the others. And it's Rosh Chodesh. They attack Rosh Chodesh. And... and of all things, it, it seems just strange. Like, there's so many powerful, beautiful ideas about Rosh Chodesh, but it has a connect to Hanukkah. So I'm going to suggest a few powerful ideas that the Greeks could have tried to attack, and I'm going to propose one which I think is perhaps the most important. So number one is identity. You know, we talk about why is Rosh Chodesh the first mitzvah? And it comes to the root of Rosh Chodesh, Chodesh, Nunes. Klai Yisrael was, where Mitzrayim is the first mitzvah Klai Yisrael were given because they were, yeah, slave mentality, slave identity. Ibn Ezra talks about this, why Moshe Rabbeinu had to free the Jews because he was the only one that wasn't raised as a slave. So we can have a king mentality who was raised as the son of a king. He can actually have the, the sense of we are destined for us. If you look at the journey of Klai Yisrael through the Midbar, they always want to go back to Mitzrayim, not because it makes sense, but because that's who they identify themselves as, which is why Kosh Baruch Hu had to filter that out and actually wait for that entire generation that left Mitzrayim to die before the generation that can enter Israel, uh, meaning until they can enter Israel, uh, Israel, because until there was a generation that identified as Klai Yisrael, identified as transcendent beings, they were always going to have that slave mentality, but Rosh Chodesh, that Chodesh, that newness, was meant to give Christ the ability of having a new identity, a transcendent identity, one that is able to live on a transcendent mission, with a transcendent purpose, live a transcendent life within this world. And the Greeks attacked that identity and said, you have no connection to Rosh Chodesh. You have no connection to Rosh Baruch, you have no, no connection to, to having that sense of purpose and identity which is what Rosh Chodesh represents, the ability to then go into the Midbar and receive the Torah. Before they received the Torah, they had to have Rosh Chodesh because they had to get a new identity, which would allow them to become a Makom, someone who was able to receive that Torah. And the Greeks attacked that and said no. Number two, we know Rosh Chodesh is connected to, to Bezdin, to our control over time, our connection to time. And, you know, a free person has a schedule 
They value their time. They know who they are. And when you have a real sense of control over time, of your time, a connection to time, you live a very transcendent life. But one that has no sense of identity and also has no sense of goals, of schedule, of, of really maximizing their time is not living a holy life. And a slave has no control over their time. So that's very connected to the Rosh Chodesh was our ability to control time. But more than that, more than that, Pesach, which is, you know, Yitzhiya Smachayim, which is the same time that we got Rosh Chodesh, our connection to time and control over time is not just in the practical sense, but all of Pesach, if you think about it, especially the halachas of chametz, of, of, of being perfect with our time, of transcending time, that is what this represents. It's where... We're, we're, we're living beyond the limitations of space and time. And to take a step further, that's where the Kodesh Hashem is. There's no space and time in the Kodesh Hashem because that's where space and time comes from. Which is why the Greeks tried to disconnect us from that, to attack Eichel, which connects us to the Kodesh Hashem, and says, you have no connection to the transcendent. And that's what Pesach was. It's like, you're one second too late with the Masters. You have Isra Kari. Like, well, you have to be perfect with time. Transcend. That was our root, was this, like, have a transcended, uh, just getting beyond the limitations of time and space. And also matzah is, it minimizes the use of time and space. The minimum, the minimum amount of time, the minimum amount of space. That's what, like Rosh Chodesh, this, this connection to time, this connection to being when it comes to time, is something that the Greeks try to attack. And number four is this concept of, of, of cycles in time. Right? Each month, this kind of cycling, uh, this, this notion of how do we view time? So the Greeks view time as a continuum. Time continues. But we don't view time as a continuum. We view time as not only, a, it's not only a straight line, but and it's not only a circle, but it's a spiral. The Ramchal talks about this, how each cycle around the year, we're going in circles and, the, and themes, right? So every Pesach represents the, tapping into the themes of Pesach. Every circus we tap into the themes of circus, And every Hanukkah, we tap into the themes of the Hanukkah. That's not just a circle, the spiral. We're building. Every single Hanukkah is, we're building one step higher than the previous Hanukkah. And we constantly go through these spirals in time. And the Greeks were attacking our spiritual notion of time. So you have no connection to a higher form of time. And that actually also connects to the sun versus the moon, because we, we, we tap into the concept of constant chiddush. The moon waxes and wanes. There's this newness within time. The sun, which is how the non-Jews count the, by, by, the, by the solar year, there's no newness in the sun. It's the same. Shana is old. And obviously we've talked in the past uh, deep ideas about connecting the lunar and solar year, how that's what the, the Vilna Gun says, the Sashmi are the 10 days that connect the 355 of a full lunar year to the 365 of the solar year, and that the ideal is to connect the solar with the lunar and the, the kind of like the newness within the Shana, and Shana also means change, because when you really connect our lunar cycles with the solar, then you create newness within the old, We've talked about this. We're not going to go into this now. It's something to keep in the back of your mind. And if you didn't understand it, it's 100% okay. Um, but two more ideas. One we've, uh, we've talked about before, and this, the last one is something which is, is very important for Hanukkah. Number five is the idea based on the Midrash, which is that the moon originally was fully reflecting of the light of the sun. 
right? The, Rashi picks up on the fact that it says that there were two luminaries, and then there was a small one and a big one. What happened? Why, you know, why why was the moon so small? So he quotes the famous Midrash that the moon was originally like the sun. He complains that how can there be two kings? How can there be two crowns? So Hashem said, "You're right. There can't. You're going to be small." So ego made it lose its original light, and it wasn't that there were two suns; it's that there were two two equal lights. That originally the moon fully reflected the sun of the light, the, the, the light of the sun. Sorry, it fully reflected the light of the sun. And once it sinned with ego, it was no longer able to fully reflect it, similar to Adam Harishon, who originally fully reflected a transcendent light. But once he ate from the Etzadas, he became much more physical, like you and I, where he was no longer transcendent in that same sense. And now we need to reattain. Why every month where we say, uh, where we say Kirshlavana, we daven that the moon once again fully reflect the light of the sun, because that's what we want: is for this physical world to fully reflect its original light, for the moon to fully reflect this light, and for us to fully reflect our true light. And you know, we've talked about this also in the past. But the Greeks said something very interesting. What is the very essence of the moon? It reflects a transcendent light. It reflects the light of the sun. And what do we? Why do we count by the moon? Because we also say that we don't shine our own light. We reflect the light of Akash Baruch The Torah, the aura of Torah, we, we are reflectors of something that's beyond us. Our light doesn't come from within us. And the Greeks said, no, human beings are their own gods. We don't have to connect anything higher because we are all that there is. Our rational faculties are all that we need. But then there's the, the, the sixth step, which is very powerful, which is the concept of newness. You know, Aristotle, the Ramam talks, talks about this in Morin Buchan. Aristotle claimed that the world was never created because God's perfect and therefore everything just is. The world always was and this world always is. There is no chiddush, there's no creation. And because there's no creation, what does that mean? There's no newness. There was no creation of the world. There was no ma'an Torah. There's no mitzvot. Why is there no ma'an Torah? Because Hashem never does anything new. So there was no like active giving of the Torah because that's something new. There's no miracles, there's no prophecy, there's no hashkacha, there's no connection with the transcendent. That attacks our entire essence. And what do we say? Hashem has Ratzon. Ramchal talks about this, and Ramam talks about this as well in the morning of the Chum. Ramchal spells this out very powerfully, that we believe that Akash Baruch has Ratzon, and Akash Baruch is able to act in the world. That the world is not disconnected from Akash Baruch Hu, but deeply connected. And that there is Hashkacha. And that we can connect him through Tzavta, through Mitzvos, through learning Hashem's Torah, through becoming more and more godly. And that we are able to tap into the newness, which is Torah. That Torah was given through an act of newness. And that is why the Greeks attack our Torah and attack our newness. They say there's nothing beyond a natural human intellect. There's nothing else. Use your human faculties, look around the world, and think. There's nothing higher. And we said, no, there is. There is something higher. There is something more transcendent. And, and this really is the Midrash. The Midrash says, I'll read you the Midrash. So the Midrash says, So the Midrash says that, that, that you have to say that you have no chilek in Hashem. Because that's, that's the entire battle. They're saying, just stop it. Stop saying you're connected to Hashem. That is against everything we are as a people. Our entire ideology. Like, we love the fact that you're smart, that you're intellectual, that you're wise, that you want to live a great life. Like, that's what we'd want too. But stop saying you have something more than us. They couldn't stand that. And that's why they said, you have to say you have no sheer in Hashem. 
and no sharing his Torah. Which really means that you have no chilek al Khabimal. You have no transcendent connection to anything beyond what anyone has. There's no difference between Jews and non-Jews. There's, there's no difference between anything. There's nothing beyond the physical world. There, there's no uh, you know, transcendent neshama connection to the spiritual world. Just, just stop saying all of this and accept our wisdom. Accept our way of life. You can come to our academies. You can go join our culture. Become like us. And we said, no, but why did they say to write on the Karen of a shore? What's a horn? The horn is that which extends beyond the moach, beyond the brain, the seichel. It's, you know, in deeper wisdom, it's, it's like, it's kind of like the kesser, the crown, that which is lamala, that which is beyond the intellectual faculties. And they said, which is also, by the way, deeply connected to ratzon, to, to will, to choice. And they said, not only does Akash Baruch Hu not have choice, Akash Baruch Hu didn't have will, Akash Baruch Hu didn't give you the Torah, but you are not connected to anything higher, anything transcendent. You have no castle, no crown. So he said, right on the on the horn that which protrudes, that which extends from the from the head of the of the shore of the axe, right that you have no share in Akash Baruch Hu. And and well, let's take this a step further. If you notice, a horn is bent, right? The horns bend. We've talked about in the past that the world is considered, the Bala Mahashab talked about how the world is a bent world. And we have to, we have to create, a, a, we have to recreate that bent path to create a straight path. And we talked about how Adam Harishan originally saw the world through clear lens. Everything was clear. It was like a straight path. He can see truth. But then once he said the world fell, and now we can no longer see the spiritual, we can no, no longer see spiritual truth, we can no longer see Hashem, we have to use uh, the, the, our, our intellect and use, uh, you know, uh, questions and answers and, and delve deeper and deeper into life to get back to that truth. And the mushroom's like this, imagine you're walking down the road and you look back, you can see where you came from. But if the road bends, you can no longer see where you came from. And the world bent. And our job is to, to, to straighten that bent path to get back to that truth, to remember, not to forget, to, to show light in the, to, to create light in the darkness, to get back to that transcendent truth. But the Greeks said, no, the world is bent, it always was bent, and always will be bent, right on a bent horn. Because that's what life is. Don't try to connect, don't try to strain the bent path, embrace the bent path. That is the path. And why a cow? So we can't talk so much about this because really this requires many sharing. But two, Maral talks about it, and I'll just suggest two aspects. Number one, why a cow? Why an ox? So number one, the Maral talks about the eagle hazav. What was the eagle hazav? So the whole she we've actually talked about this in the past too. But an eagle hazav, according to some, is mamish idolatry, mamish avodazara. According to others, it wasn't mamish avodazara. It was. It was doing. It was. It was something that Hakadosh Baruch Hu didn't command. Why? Because a gold for a gold intermediary was actually something that Hakadosh Baruch Hu was going to command. That's going to be the kruvim. So why was it appropriate? Because Hakadosh Baruch Hu, there's no tzivui. The Ramban talks about this. Kuzuri talks about this. Yehuda uh, Levi. The Hakadosh Baruch Hu did not command it. Right? Godol mitzuv It's better to be commanded by Hakadosh Baruch Hu. There's a lot of nuance there. We're not going to go into a lot of it right now, but the problem was ego. It was basically creating your own form of serving Akash Baruch Hu as opposed to doing it the way that Akash Baruch Hu commanded it. And there are 
times where that's appropriate, there are times where it's inappropriate. That was the Chanukah HaSamishkan, it was the very root of our Avodah Hashem within the Mishkan, and to do it on our own terms was completely inappropriate. Now the Aviyu, another example, of, sorry, it was not the beginning of Chanukah I'm talking about the view. I'm saying it was at the beginning of our Avodah Hashem, we were just about to get the Torah, and at that point to do it was completely inappropriate. And just like, that's what I meant, but just when the Aviyu, by the Chanukah Samishkan, did um, the Ketores, but without being commanded to, that was, you know, is the same type of problem. So the question's like this. What, what does this have to do with writing on the Karen of the Shor Yudnov Chilak in Hashem? So the Maharal says like this. He says that the problem that Eagle is of was showing that there is some form of disconnect between us and Hashem, that we needed some intermediary. Whether it was of a desire, whether it was just, you know, showing that we need an intermediary in a positive way, I mean, we do, we have the Beis HaMikdash is, a, in, a, in a sense, an intermediary. The intermediary is meant to be completely transparent and just as a mechanism for us to connect to the transcendent, but it's still there. Whether that's the ideal or not is actually a very interesting discussion. Were we always supposed to have a Mishkan? That's a Machol between Rashi and the Rabban. That's a really fascinating discussion that we're not going to have right now. But this concept of an intermediary is what the Greeks said is the very proof that you have no Chilak in Hashem. Why do you, what, what, the very fact that you did the Eagle Azov is a proof that you're not connected to Hashem. And they tried to really put that in our face and say like, you know, remember this, you're not connected to Hashem. And that, that was a very powerful and disruptive point. And the Maral goes into that, that they were really trying to attack our very identity and saying that you have no connection to Hashem. Another form of which I'm not, really not going to go into, but I'll just lay this as a seat for those who want to delve deeper, is that Yosef is very connected to Ashur. Yosef is very connected to Ashur, and that's also, he's very connected to Hanukkah. Yosef, we always read about Parshas Mikis right around Hanukkah, and Yosef's beauty is always compared to the Greeks' illegitimate form of beauty, and that Yosef represents Yesod, a connection to the spiritual through the physical, and that's why his name his name was Tzofnas Paneach, which reveals the hidden, he reveals a connection to something higher, and they really try to attack that concept of, of the shore, which is, represents Yosef, of that connection to something transcendent, which is also why, by the way, the eagle was a shore. The eagle has a, was, was a calf, the same, same animal as an ox. So, to, before we go into our, the, the last question we had, just to bring everything together, and I know this is a lot, this is a tremendous amount of material, and, and I really wanted to tie everything together, because you can do it in piecemeal, we can do it piece by piece, but I want to bring everything together. I want to just create this framework of how everything is interconnected in Torah. And everything in Jewish history, every aspect of our Chagim, every aspect of Torah and, and Torah life is all fundamentally deeper and interconnected and everything you know will, imp- will impact everything else you know. And the more you know, the more incredible everything else you know will become when you learn to tie it together, bring all the themes and ideas together, learn how they're not just individual different Torah, but they tie together into higher forms of Torah wisdom and truth. And that the Gezeras weren't just random decrees, but they all were meant to attack a very unique nikuda, a very unique, powerful point of Jewish identity and who we represent and what we try to accomplish in life. But now let's get back to one of the questions we asked, which is why are the Greeks compared to a Ger Toshev? It's a very interesting question. Why a Ger Toshev? We said it doesn't make sense. Like, Ger Toshev is becoming Jewish because they accepted the chef, Mrs. Benyalach. But that's the point. A ger toshav is someone whose who's very nature is that he's in limbo. He's in between. He's neither here nor there. He's neither Jewish nor non-Jewish. 
He's neither this or that. He's not committed to Torah, but he's also not committed to, to not wisdom, to not living a life of truth. He's seeking. He wants more. But he's not there yet. And that is the point. It's someone who has accepted the Sheva Mitzvah, what, the seven Mitzvah, remember, seven verses eight, seven. He's accepted the, the natural forms of, of wisdom. It's actually interesting because really to be a Ger you have to accept it because it was given by Hashem. We're not going to get into all the details right now. It's something interesting to think about. But a Ger is someone who's not yet there. And someone who's not willing to go all in. He has not yet devoted himself to the absolute truth. He's devoted himself to truth and to wisdom, but not to the absolute truth. He's not willing to give up his ego. He's not willing to completely commit yet. And that's who the Greeks were. They loved wisdom. They loved truth. They loved learning. They loved uh, human uh, achievement. But they were limited to their ego. And whatever they were willing to accept, whatever they could understand, that was fine. Anything beyond that, was was just simply not relevant, was not true. And, and they wanted not only not accepting themselves, but to make sure no one else could accept it, because no one can claim transcendence to them. They were the highest. And this is really, you know, if we want to tie everything together, we talked about Yavan and quicksand. But there's something really, why quicksand? Do you ever think about that? Why did Hashem choose a name which also means quicksand? So I'll share an insight I had which is that quicksand, the more you struggle, the deeper you get in. The more, struggle, the more you struggle, the more you get stuck inside of it. And if you try to battle the Greeks on their own turf, on their own terms, using reason and logic, you can only go so far and you'll actually get more stuck than not. We embrace reason, we embrace logic, we embrace philosophy and science and psychology and mathematics. There's just something more. There's the source of all of that, which is Torah. Orisa, the light of Torah, which is the source of all wisdom, the source of everything. And it doesn't reject wisdom, it's simply beyond it. And if you try to battle the Greeks using Greek wisdom, you get stuck more and more into their quicksand, into their ocean of Teva, and you start drowning in that. When you recognize the only way to get out of quicksand is to have something outside of the system to help you. You need someone to bring you out. You need some leverage, something to hold on to, a rope to latch on to. The only way you can get out of quicksand is if you have something outside the system that's able to bring you outside of the, the suction and the drowning experience of the quicksand. And that's what Torah is. Torah is that which, which we can grasp onto and which brings us out of that quicksand. And... I'll say that it's not only to do it yourself. The Iker is really what's Hanukkah about, pursuing Isa, is to share that light with others. We, we take that light in our home, and of course, first we, we focus on, on embracing and enlightening our own, style, our own selves, our own lives, our own homes, our own uh, spiritual perspective. But we then shine that light out of our homes to inspire others, to throw that up to someone else who needs it, to someone who's struggling, to someone who needs some hope, something to latch onto, some way of getting out of the quicksand. And so many people, you know, I'm not going to end this in a negative way, but you and I both know that there are countless people that you know that are stuck in Western culture, that are stuck, that are drowning, that simply, uh, their eyes are darkened and they've forgotten forgotten who they are, they've forgotten what life is about. And our responsibility is not only to really focus on discovering that ourselves, but to share, 
to share that with others and to inspire others and to live a life of commitment to Torah and mitzvahs, but also to sharing Torah with other people. And whether you want to do that through becoming a Talmud Chacham, which is fantastic, but there are other ways to do too, to support Torah, to be involved in Torah, to care about Torah, to talk about Torah, to show that you value it, that you want it, that you cherish it, and to, you know, make it a part of your life and to just bring the most awesome aspects of the Torah life into other people's lives that maybe don't have that as much. And that's what the, the Greeks, they tried to negate who we are. But on Hanukkah, we have to remember who we are. That we are here, we, we are individuals on mission to become the ultimate versions of ourselves. We're also part of a cloud at Seaboard. And you're part of a community, but you're also part of Klai Yisrael. And you need to then realize that because you're part of something bigger than yourself, you need to be committed to that. And then as Klai Yisrael, our job is really, our, our, our year-long job is to be a menorah and to just, you know, emanate that light of Torah wisdom, of Torah Shalpah, which is what the menorah represents, which is that light of Torah. And the Hanukkah is the Chag of Torah Shalpah is the Chag of Torah. There is no Torah source for Hanukkah. There are definitely you know, hints in the Torah. The Ramban finds hints in the Torah for Hanukkah. But it's not Torah Shabbat. It's not even in the Mishnah. And even in the Gemara, there's a small little passage that's talking about you know, Shabbos and brings it up. There's no... It, it really is within the Mesorah and hearts of Kal Yisrael. And, and that is what our responsibility is. Like We have to become Torah. We have to become Torah. Not only to learn about Torah, not only to think about Torah or talk about Torah, to become Torah, to see the world through the lens of Torah. And then once we do that, we can share the light of Torah with others. So my bracha is that we should be inspired to not only experience the ultimate light of Hanukkah and the ultimate light of Torah and Hanukkah, but to share that Torah wisdom and that light of Hanukkah with as many people as we can.